Hi everybody! It's been a while since we've had a VLL broadcast. I know that on the VLP website it'll say that it's a weekly thing and no it's not because there's a lot of series, playlists, everything I gotta do and unfortunately the VLL playlist was the first to get the axe. I know, it's unfortunate. But every now and then we will do another. And in case anybody asks, what does VLL mean? Well, now that we are on the 49th of them, VLL stands for Very Lutheran Lutheran. Yes, <laughs> I kid you not. That's what it stands for. But as our Catacomb Basics series and the practicals that we've been doing was delayed. We only had half as much time to cover the liturgy, and that's going to be next week. I decided instead to answer a question that came from our deacon chat. And it's the kind of question that bears its own VLL broadcast. Something that should be a little special, one of those once-in-a-while things. Again, at some point we will come back to weekly VLL broadcasts, but... As long as y'all are loving the Sex and Marriage series, the Catacomb Basics and Catacomb Practicals, the Bible study stuff, everything that we're doing, reading and evaluating, X, Y, or Z thing, VLL will make a comeback in the future. Anyway, here is his question. All the righteousness and sanctification and justification stuff comes across to me as jargon and nonsense. I don't see how the stated position on these things being out of our control differs from a Sam Harris tier, we don't have free will, but we have to act like we do type of take. I'm really struggling here. If the Holy Spirit comes into Bob Goodman and justifies him with him having no part, and if justification is necessary for sanctification, which is mostly God working through the Holy Spirit anyway, while Bob repents and uses the law, but both of those are dependent on the Holy Spirit, and somehow this leads to righteousness, which is a fruit, which means what exactly, this whole thing seems rather pointless from a human perspective, because we aren't really participants. This is all just God playing cowboys and Indians with his toys. Now, if there was a relatable question, then any layman, lay leader, or deacon, or even a pastor could ask, this is it. A question that boils down to, what is the point? You see, in the chat, as we talked about this, he was saying, listen, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to burn for all of eternity. How do I know? And if it's as simple as what our Lord Christ says in Mark 16, verse 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, okay, well, at that point, what's the point of life? So there's a lot of loaded things in there, but I think his question accurately just brought to the fore something a lot of Christians are asking today. What is is the point and what does my life look like as a Christian so first off we have to admit this is a question that people have been asking for a very long time
time. King Solomon, or Koheleth, writing in Ecclesiastes, says, Everything is vanity. What's the point? I'm just going to die in the end, so whether I'm rich or I'm poor, it doesn't really matter in the end, does it? And he agonizes over this to the point where he throws up his hands and says, Okay, listen, the whole point of everything is to just fear God, enjoy your life, whatever kind of life you have, as best as you can, keep God's commandments, there you go. There is a sense where everything is meaningless if you look at this life and the fruits of this life. No matter how good or bad, no matter how happy or sad your life was, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're in the ground or you are a pile of cremated ash and somebody else takes all of your stuff. What was your life for? Now, a lot of pastors chafe at this and they immediately go, but, 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 but it's different for us New Testament believers. We understand where we're going. We're going to heaven. Sure. That's true. But Christians are still struggling everywhere with that sense of purpose, especially because we are all getting mixed messages. On the one hand, you have the works righteousness denominations that say, your purpose of life is to earn not getting to hell. Oh, you're justified, sure, by faith, but also by works. So if you want to not burn for all eternity, yeah, get to work. That's your purpose. Not going to hell. There you go. And we Lutherans properly reject that. That is an extreme end of the spectrum that you see with various rad trads of every stripe. And it is terrifying. It is unbiblical. It's harsh. It's horrible. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are these Protestant goobers who say, Listen, dude, you're justified by faith alone, right? And your sins are totally forgiven in your baptism. And, you know, there's nothing you can really do to please God. Anything you do is just going to be sin. So I'll tell you what, believe in Jesus, be baptized. And then you go to church on Sunday to hear about the forgiveness of your sins, to strengthen your faith and keep you going, all right? But until then, you know, you're really just kind of waiting around until you're dead. Those people whom I have disaffectionately entitled feeding tube Lutherans are abominable. I mean, these are the people responsible for all sorts of internal doctrinal documents in the LCMS and elsewhere where they really do think that you are incapable of doing anything in this life to be more holy. They don't care about the two kinds of righteousness. They don't care about living a holy life. And they really do think that your purpose as a Christian is to wait until you are dead. And then you're going to get to heaven. You're going to just be there in this dreamlike state. Then the resurrection happens, and after the resurrection, you're just going to be there floating. Unfortunately, the feeding tube Lutherans have had their day in the sunshine, haven't they? They're everywhere in both conservative and liberal denominations across the spectrum. There's a whole lot of people who, when you ask them, what's my purpose in life as a Christian? How do I live? 
what do I do? Their answer is, uh, I just go to church, dude. That's it. That is all that they have to offer. And I offer to you that that way of looking at life is stupid. If some graduate from some theological seminary gets in there behind the pulpit because he mouthed the right words during his ordination vows and forgot everything that the Lutheran church confesses, then I submit to you that this individual will preach the same exact sermon every week, Sunday in and Sunday out, and it will be just as unfruitful, unhelpful as any other sermon. You suck, but God loves you anyway. That is a law and gospel only sermon. If you preach that every single week, just worded differently according to different readings in the lectionary, well, such a pastor is not helping his congregation to walk in holiness and with purpose. There's a reason that Rick Warren's whole like purpose-driven life movement got so much traction. Why he is so filthy, stinking rich, okay? Because everybody in Christendom wanted to know, what is my purpose? If we look at human beings as puppets, cowboys and Indians, as the uh, reader put it, you're just a toy that God uses in a positive or a negative light, then, okay, you have no purpose except what God decides to do with you. But if God didn't exist in the first place, you still don't have a purpose because your purpose is to be a rotting mass of organic matter that maybe produces more rotting mass of organic matter. It's also the reason that the most humiliating movement in all of philosophy, the existentialists, got so much traction because they said, well, if I don't have a purpose, might as well make one up. I'm going to become a basket weaver. Yet all of humanity continuously rejects existentialism and they reject determinism because something isn't adding up. I don't exist to be a toy. I don't exist to be a floating mass of rotting, dying, decaying flesh. And Lord knows it can't be the thing that the works righteousness people are saying, where my entire existence is nothing but being a scared slave. Yes, yeah, slave religion is something that our human existence balks against. Yeah, your purpose is to just constantly work all your life until you die. And if you did good enough, maybe you go to heaven, right? Yeah, that's silliness. Yes, the Christian is called to work out his salvation with fear and trembling in Scripture. But that does not mean that we are broken outcasts in the streets of Mumbai drinking water out of puddles because nobody else will pour it into our mouth. There's something more. There has to be something more to all of this. And the people out there who feel that hunger are 100% correct. The Bible rejects the feeding tube people. Let's be straight here. God gave us commands in the New Testament, things to follow, things to hold on to, ways to live our lives. If it was just 
a matter of the Holy Spirit forcing me to obey these commandments and sometimes maybe just not forcing me or sometimes kind of making me sin, then I'm worthless. I'm nothing. I am an object, not a person. And I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus died for people, not stuff. He did not die for toys, puppets, robots, automata, however you want to put it. He didn't die so that you would be forced to be pigeonholed into a certain role. Either you're lucky enough to be one of the elect or you are unlucky and unfortunate enough to be damned. That is not the purpose of atonement because Jesus died for people. Persons, mind, will, and emotions. People who have the ability to make meaningful choices. So it can't be what the feeding tube people are saying, because God knows whether they are Calvinist and therefore hard determinist, or they are the squishy kind of Lutheran that says, well, it doesn't really matter because you're here just sitting on life support until you're brought to full life and then you're not going to do much different anyway that still has the same darned problem of you not living a life that has any meaning or purpose whatsoever. Your purpose is defined by your use, I guess, that you never had any choice in the matter of making. You couldn't decide whether or not you were elect. You couldn't decide whether or not you loved God, so God forced you, if you were lucky enough to be one of the elect, the end. That's not a purposeful life of a person. Personhood by itself denotes purpose. So here's where we understand that the atheists are wrong, because if we were just matter, there would be no such thing as purpose anyway. You don't have mind, will, and emotions from a pile of dirt. You do not have rotting organic matter constantly enthralled to a hypnotic illusion called emotions or thought just Popping out of nowhere, uh-uh. No, I mean, the atheist can't even say that there's such a thing as value. They can't say that one thing is better than another because that all boils down to arbitrary opinion. And we also reject the works righteousness people. Those who say that you got to earn your way, dude. Because then you're living your life in rebellion to personhood. You're saying, I am a person with mind, will, and emotions. I am somebody who exists for some reason, but I have to rebel against any and all individualistic traits of myself in order to abolish that and become some sort of slave that fits into the proper slot. Mandatory determinism. Seek to earn what the determinist or the feeding tube person thinks is going to happen anyway. So the three options we have are wrong. But we still have a hunger for something. We still have an idea in our minds that there's got to be more than what we're seeing here. And it, it can't be me being in a coma until God delivers me from my coma to put me in a different coma. It can't be me... Being an object anyway that just exists for no reason until it dies and then experiences nothingness. And it can't be me slaving away to earn what the coma people and the object people think is going to happen anyway. What is 
my purpose. I'm going to give you something. Something to think about. Reward and relationship. God is the only actor in salvation. St. Peter says in Acts 4.12 that there's only one name under heaven by which men are saved, and that is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no salvation in any other name. Not yours, not mine. Billy Goodman doesn't save himself when Jesus saves him. He can't add his own name to that list saying, Ah, yes, Jesus is my Savior, but also Billy Goodman. No. We are justified by faith alone. And what does justification mean? That is when God says to you, dear Christian, that you who believe in Jesus Christ, you are counted righteous. Jesus died for your sins. You trust in him. You belong to God. And when you die, you are going to go to heaven, provided you continuously trusted in him for your salvation. Our Lord Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. The Christian must assume that he is saved because that is the kind of God that we worship. And of course we live a penitent life, but we must assume that our Lord Christ is our Savior. Put your faith in him. But he offers rewards upon his return for those who were faithful some more faithful than others. Heaven is a hierarchy. Heaven is unequal. Some people getting more rewards than others. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. In heaven and at the last judgment day, there are people who will get more things from God. Everybody gets eternal life, yes, but we don't live in some communistic idea of equality in heaven where everybody gets the same token, the same wages, and we are all there blankly. No, even though there is the same salvation offered to everybody, Christ offers rewards. And he asks you, dear Christian, how much do you want? I have crowns. I have authority that I can delegate. I can do so much for you that is beyond your capability to understand right now but there are incentives both in this life and in the next hebrews eleven six says it is impossible to please our god without faith we must believe that he rewards the one who truly and earnestly seeks after him what does that reward look like well i'll tell you what i'm gonna go out and find it with Hebrews 11, verse 6, my God just informed me that a part of my saving faith, where he already declares that I'm saved, is to discover more of the good that he has in store for me. Praise the Lord. I'm going to start digging. Now, could I choose to not do that? Could I choose to say, yeah, but I'm pretty happy with my feeding tube? I guess so. But doesn't God invite us to do more, to be more, to have more, to rejoice in more? Absolutely. And that's where the second R comes in, relationship. God invites you to pray to him. God invites you to please him. God invites you to live a life where you walk with him, like a father with his child. Now certainly, 
If a father and his two-year-old kid crossed the street, who was the one responsible for getting that kid across the street? Oh, the father was. Yes, not the two-year-old. Especially because, you know, two-year-olds get tired and they want you to hold them a lot. And they can't walk on their own. Not for very long, anyway. That's part of it. God says, hey, walk with me. You're my kid now. Let's walk together. Get to know each other. That's a part of our life. A part of our purpose here is where God says to you, I created you. You have your own personality. You have your things that you like to do. And it makes me happy to see you happy with what I've done. When you rejoice in the things I've provided. When you enjoy a meal. When you say, these are some great nachos, or a burger, or whatever food you like, or, I don't know, a beer. If you enjoy that, and you enjoy it in gratitude to the God who gave it to you, that makes God happy. In fact, obeying any of his commandments, especially the Ten Commandments, makes God happy. He loves to see that. When you didn't belong to him, it didn't count, didn't matter. Romans 14, 23, whatever is not done in faith is sin. God doesn't care if a pagan refuses to cheat on his wife. I mean, good for that guy. I guess he'll have a more stable marriage. But God rewards you specifically when you are faithful in your family. God looks at you and says, yes, you're my boy. You're my girl. You're following the family rules and it is awesome to see it. Part of the problem of systematic theology is we have this idea of an equation God. Input repentance. Output mercy. Input grace. Output thankfulness. There are so many theologians that characterize the relationship between God and the believer as nothing more than a computer program. Something predictable. Something safe. Something where you can say, this is exactly how it works every single time, and it does not surprise me in the slightest that these are the biggest proponents of feeding tube theology, where you just wait around to die, because at the end of the day, that's the kind of God these people want. Something safe and predictable, rather than the primal, personal, powerful, savage God that we worship, who says all of the universe is his, but out of all the billions of people out there, he looks at you and says, I want you. I do not want to worship a God that fully makes sense to me. Not in the slightest. But I want a God that wants me, that loves me, that cares about me. Because if God is not for me, what do I care? What does that matter? There's probably a lot of theologians burning in hell right now because they worshipped what they could write down on a piece of paper rather than the true God. They trusted in a formula rather than the risen Christ who bled for them. Who says, yes, I died on that cross for you. And when you are baptized, you are mine. You are united to me. And I give you heaven. I give you the new earth. You are part of my kingdom and I rule over you. Now, how much more do you think I can give you? Well, stay tuned. I have so much more. It is all grace. The omnipotent God can give you more than your imagination can possibly imagine. 
Now, this same God is faithful. Don't get me wrong. He means what he says, and he does not change his opinion of you or his promises toward you. When he says you are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, he means it. You do not need to worry that one day this ineffable, unpredictable, powerful God is going to change his mind and say, Oops, no, you know, today I feel different. I'm going to, I'm going to have you go to heaven by eating enough cheese. No, God doesn't act that way. I was tempted to open up the formula of concord. Read from the sections on free will and the third use of the law to go into the finer points of justification by faith and where our works fit in. I thought about doing that because God has promised that. The Lutheran reformers were quite well aware of that part of our lives as Christians. By all means, you're invited to look into it, thebookofconcord.org. But if I bored you all to sleep, reading from the solid declaration and reading out every passage of scripture that backs up what the Lutheran reformers were saying, we would miss the point that actually answers the question, what is the purpose of all of this? Am I just a puppet or organic matter or am I slaving away on the hamster wheel of works? And the answer to all three of those is no. God wants to show you his grace and he wants a relationship with you where he sees how you respond to that grace. He wants to bless you, to save you. And as he perfects your character, because that's what a good father does, is make sure that his child grows up in the best possible ways to be the best that they can be. He wants to see you say, dad, I trust you. My Heavenly Father, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why things are so hard, but I'm going to stick with you and trust you in spite of all of that pain. I'm going to be yours. And I know that you have nothing but good to show me in the hereafter, and I'm excited for it. Your purpose and my purpose are so intertwined with the notion of fellowship and relationship. Using the will that God says he himself, the omnipotent creator of the entire universe, is not going to control fully because he wants to love you, the person. That's at least half of the story. You have been adopted into a family. Treat it that way. And it's wonderful to think about it that way because if you're adopted into this family, as scripture teaches us, then you have an inheritance promised to you. Not one that we deserve, not one that we earn. By all means, kids don't deserve the adoption into the family that they're given. They need it, absolutely, but they don't deserve it. It's all grace. And to take the kid that's adopted and write him into the will, a living will, for a dad that's not going to die is fantastic news. I want to belong to that family, don't you? That is is our purpose. And I praise God every day for it. Now, somebody might be listening to this going, oh my gosh, pastor, when are you going to stop sounding like some over-emotional evangelical? Well, in all the other times I've explained this using higher theological terms on the VLP SoundCloud, why do you ask? 
And why would you be upset at me feeling a bit emotional about this? God gave us emotions. Why not? I'm going to take advantage of that and record something. <laughs> that said, guys, this is all good news. That we don't worship a predictable divine computer. We're not mistaken in worshiping him. And he doesn't treat us as employees. He loves us. He cares. And half, if not more, of our purpose and the big fat wise as to do this is wrapped up in that familial relationship that he adopts us into at the moment of our baptism. I praise the Lord for it. Now, for some people, they're going to listen to this and they're going to go, yep, been a Christian for 35 years, been there, I understand it, and it took me a long time to reach the same conclusions Job reached. Uh, listen to our Job study for more on that one. By all means, you might already be there. For other people, they might feel this is unsatisfying. It doesn't really answer the questions that they have. That's okay. Some of this comes with time, really. I know that's an even less satisfying answer to say. If, okay, pastor, you gave an answer, but I don't like it very much. I'm happy to, you know, talk with you over email on the topic. But it really is something that God shows us in our hearts over time as we engage in more of this relationship with him, as we try to do more good works, obeying his word, trusting in Christ for salvation, rejoicing in the sacraments that he feeds us with to preserve us. But a lot of it takes time because sanctification, the process where God takes the believer and makes them a better person, it's kind of like a father raising his son. As the son gets older, he understands more of what's going on and he can contextualize the relationship and the purpose behind it all a lot better. It takes growth and it takes patience. And part of the church's job is being like siblings that help each other in that to understand what our Heavenly Father is up to. And we praise God for it too, because otherwise we'd feel very isolated. All right. I don't know when the next VLL broadcast is going to be, but I can tell you it'll probably be something cool. <laughs> Until then, next week we will get back into the Catacomb Practicals mini-series, looking at how to run church, how to do it, and how to enjoy the things that God has given us. And for those who might be worried, nope, I'm not getting rid of the confessions. I am still a confessional Lutheran. I'm a pietist. I'm also confessional, and all of those theologians that we would normally cite regarding this kind of topic, by all means, I respect them. They're usually better guys than me. I'd say about 95% of the time. <laughs> but we'll have plenty of opportunities to get into all that in the future. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.